The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Humor. Humor can be such a powerful tool for talking about uncomfortable things. It allows us to get closer to the emotional truth of a situation or an issue. Sometimes it lets us just talk about hard things for longer. Today's guests have embraced humor to talk about racism. And I know what you might be thinking here, those two words, they don't belong in the same sentence. But if that's where your mind is at, well, then you haven't met W. Kamau Bell and Kate Schatz. Kamau is a comedian and Emmy Award-winning TV host. You may have seen him in the CNN docuseries United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. Kate is an activist and the author of the Rad Women book series. Their latest project requires you to bring a pencil. Literally. It's called Do the Work, an anti-racism workbook. Yes, a workbook. It's designed to encourage more people, and especially white people, to work toward dismantling racism, not just on a one-off basis, but as a practice of day-to-day life. I started our conversation by asking Kamau and Kate, why don't white people talk more about race? (laughs) Oh, I'll take this one. (laughs) Many white people don't grow up having challenging, honest conversations about race and racism in this country. Some people do, and that's fantastic. But I think for the bulk of white culture, we don't know how to talk about it. We don't have models. We don't see it on TV and the movies. Um, We don't see it in our schools. We just don't know how to have those conversations. And in fact, many folks grew up the opposite way, where unless they grew up in like a really overtly racist family or community, um, we're often taught the opposite, which is to not talk about it. To, ever, to be colorblind, everybody's equal, don't even mention it. Um, so again, we don't, we don't have models. We don't know how to talk about it. And that's hard. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a lot of reticence to get things wrong mm-hmm. and a lot of uncertainty around what happens when, you, when and if you do get things wrong. And would you even know if you got something wrong? And there's a defensiveness that goes with it. And you really explore this in the book. Why are we so defensive? What is that about? Why in our conversations do we start there? I think we all like to think we're smarter than we are. I mean, not all of us. I don't. I don't think Kate does. But I think many of us, <laughs> I think, I think like to I'm think we're smarter smart. than <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and I think there's a weird thing where after you get to a certain age, you feel like, well, I learned all the things. Like there's sort of a, I'm done with the learning. And especially about things that don't require you to, that aren't engaging with you in your everyday life. Like, is it for your job? Is it for your kids? And maybe you'll have some more learning in you. But if it's things that you sort of were taught in school, you know, it's like every parent who gets mad at the new way that math is taught versus how they were taught math. My mom was mad at the new way I was taught math. I don't understand regrouping with my kids. So it's that thing where you get mad at the fact that knowledge changes or that knowledge expands. And so I think that's sort of just a human trait. And so let's say full stop, maybe 99% of us in this country, maybe it's 97%, weren't taught an accurate founding and history of this country up until the present day. Not only that, then some huge percentage of that were told that America, America, white America, were always heroes in the stories of America. 
and you buy into it on July 4th and and in red, white and blue underwear. You know, you buy into this idea of as, as America being the hero, and specifically white America being the hero. And then something goes by. Not always, or maybe not mostly. <laughs> and if you bought into that as a part of your identity, I think you see that a lot in um, in Southern heritage, and that that they that's what they bought into. That's the identity of white Southerners is America, and or you see it as part of like in people outside of the South, where it's like, well, but that's not got nothing to do with me. Like I I don't believe in that, so I'm if I'm not engaging in the bad parts of America uh, patriotism, then I'm a good person. So I think it's it's really about identity and how you define yourself. And then about how you, at a certain age, many of us don't want to learn new stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and because the process of really learning new stuff, and I think this may be what you, you are saying, um, it, it challenges some fundamental aspects of our identity and may mean that we need to let go of them. And it is important not to underestimate how challenging that actually is, to let go of aspects of, of your core identity. And I think that one... Uh, one challenge that comes up is that we are just undereducated, chronically undereducated about where white supremacy exists in the systems that we have that we have been formed by and shaped by. And we need to start by just acknowledging that. And yet the very act of acknowledging that is somehow threatening and scary because it opens it up, us up to so much that we don't know. Um, how did you think about that as you began to figure out what should be in your book? Mm, that's such a good question. And that, what, the, what comes to my mind is that um, is just the idea of stability and safety, right? Because when we talk about white supremacy, like whiteness is stable. And like the experience as a white person, there's a stability and a safety. Again, it can intersect with all kinds of different aspects of life, and especially class, but there's a stability to it. And when you start to unlearn these things, and when you start to face these harder truths, it gets, it's destabilizing. And I think that's, that's obviously scary for people. And I think that's where a lot of this defensiveness comes from. So knowing all of that, I think that was a big part of our approach to the book and is a kind of core part of why we approach this book with a lot of humor um, and that we did this workbook and that it's playful and that we're intentionally using activities and forms and imagery that's that feels like something you would have seen in elementary school or middle school. It's funny, but not fucking around is uh, our tagline here. Kamau, obviously, through his stand up comedy and all of his work, knows the value of, of using humor to get at difficult things. It's a way to disarm people and it's a way to kind of bring people in to something that is often um, really difficult and makes people feel defensive. So we added a lot of sugar to the tea with this book. <laughs> um, uh, sugar to the tea, uh, however you think about humor, I think about humor as a wonderfully um, convening tool that allows us to be in that difficult moment in a shared experience. Um, that's a long way of saying I really, really appreciated that. It really, it helped me think about things that are hard to think about. I mean, I think that's the humor is necessary. And sometimes people ask me specifically, like, come out, how do you come up with humor with all these dark things as if they're somehow separate? As if somehow yeah. I'm like dealing with dark subjects and then I'm like, now where do I find the humor as opposed to the humor being how you survive the darkness. The humor is, is a survival mechanism. There's a reason why, if you look at the, even the history of stand-up comedy in America, the funniest comedians were often from the oppressed groups. The people that that comedy celebrated the most were the groups that were getting the shit kicked out of them the most regularly. <laughs> so we don't sit around and go, how can we find a joke here? It's more as you process it, the same way that like 
crying is a way to process something. Humor is a way to process something. And I think we neither one of us was trying to make the information less polarizing. <laughs> neither one of us was like, how do we soften the blow? It's more, how do you make it polarizing and also get the message across? Right. Well, I think that one one successful thing that the activity book then does when it brings the reader to action through it is it leaves the reader closing the book feeling like they're on the team. Whatever the team is, they're on the team. And that's a powerful thing. And so I want to talk about the team, so to speak. I, I want I want you to explain to our listeners what anti-racism work is. What does it mean to be anti-racist? Well, I'd say I'm going to I love a metaphor an extended metaphor, Jesse. So you know that if you're on a team and you're playing a game, um, you don't just get on the team and then sit there. You have to play the game. <laughs> and if you want to play in the game, yes. you got to practice. Um, so to be anti-racist, it's, it's not just to say, I'm not racist, and then to do nothing, right? It's an active, ongoing choice. And I think that's something we try to communicate in the book. Being anti-racist is making a conscious consistent choice on a regular basis um, to take action. That's a distinction that Dr. Ibram Kendi, um, you know, really lays out, which is that it's not, it's not just saying I'm not racist. It's actively naming and working against um, racist systems in this country, in your community, in your life. So again, you don't just make the team and then lay back and let everybody else play. <laughs> and know? I love to extend a metaphor and make it more annoyingly specific. We're not all going to be Michael Jordan. Some of us are going to be Scottie Pippen, and some of us are going to be Cliff Levingston. Most of us don't know who Cliff Levingston is. And some of us maybe are in the WNBA. Yeah. Play basketball too, Let's move oh yeah, I'm just, I, I, that's why I said it's annoyingly specific. It's annoyingly specific to my Chicago Bull fandom from the '90s. So okay. the idea being that like you can't step in and be the star player. And I think a lot of times, specifically white people who sort of have this sort of like oh, I am going to be an anti-racist, they suddenly think they're the Michael Jordan of anti-racism, or the LeBron James, or the Serena Williams of anti-racism, or the uh, you know so. And maybe the Liz Cambage of anti-racism. Look at that, WNBA. (laughs) (laughs) That that actually works on multiple levels for WNBA fans. Uh, So, yes, I think a lot of times white people sort of like step in and want to take up a lot of space because white people use taking up a lot of space. And then they and they well, I'm going to start a nonprofit that does that 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 nonprofit's probably already even started and somebody's running it. It's probably a person of color who maybe would like your help, but wants to tell you what to do. You can't come in and start as if you're the star player of anti-racism. And so I think the book is really trying to lead you through this slowly so you can figure out what your role is in this, because we all have a role. And if you get good enough at it, maybe one day you'll look up and be the star of anti-racism, but you don't start there. I am terribly inconsistent about this work. I'm like on it. I'm definitely anti-racist. I'm on it. I'm on it. And then I totally forget all about it for a couple of months and look up and think, oh, oh, shoot. Don't tell anyone. But actually, I haven't been on it for the last couple of months. And I say that now because you address that in your book. Um, There's this one page that I really love. It has a checklist. And it says, when it comes to doing the work, what are you worried about? Check all that apply, which, by the way, like almost all of them are checked in my book. Um, and, um, (laughs) forgetting to do the work when I promise to do the work is prominent on that list. I think this idea that maybe it's a long game rather than a game that we're going to win right away is pretty central to what you're trying to convey. I think a lot of this really is tinged by, we wrote the bulk of it or started writing it in 2020. And so there was a lot of 
anxiety and a lot of fear of the future and a lot of fear of the present, and a lot of not knowing what's going to happen next. And I think that that really aligns well with the work of anti-racism because, you know, uh, every victory comes with another battle right down the road. So I think that, and also the idea being that like, you know, I think about 2020, think about the Peloton of the Pelotoning of 2020. Like, you know, a lot of people got excited about those Pelotons, maybe people on this podcast right now. And maybe those Pelotons are just hangers right now. like <laughs> Expensive. Hangers. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. I'm t- yeah. No, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody. I rode mine in May. once. Okay. <laughs> Again. But then if you, but then I think the idea being like, then you're not a person who rides a Peloton right now. Now you right. can get back to it, but you can't front and say, oh, yeah, I own." you can say I own a Peloton. So you can own all the books about anti-racism. But I think the thing we really want people to understand is that it's at its best, it is a thing you're doing every day. And there may be different amounts of time spent every day. But I think if you look at like Martin Luther King Jr.'s day planner or his Google calendar, it was every day. Now, can we all get there? Probably not, but it has to be regular. And I think it's no different than like if I, I follow The Rock on Instagram, he works out all the time, several times a day. We're not all going to get there <laughs> like, and, and we shouldn't all be there. But there is some way to engage with being healthy that we can all get to. So I think I think of it like that. Like, I really think the working out analogy is the thing I keep coming back to because it's like it's something that you have to do regularly to get any benefit from. And on top of that, and this is where it goes back to what you're saying. We all know when we're bullshitting ourselves when we're working out. We all know when yeah. you went to the gym. But you got a smoothie and went to the spa. You know, you went to the hot tub. Yeah. You know, you didn't actually. But you wore your Peloton shirt when you did it. Yes, exactly. People yeah. around you. you wore all your Lululemon. You were head to toe Lululemon. But uh, yeah. it, you didn't get any sweat on the Lululemon except the sweat from the hot tub. So I think, or the sauna. <laughs> so I think the idea being that, like, everybody has a different level of this anti-racism. And here's the thing. It may be for some people that just going into the gym because they haven't gone in years. That is part of it. And the same thing with anti-racism. Just sitting down next to your uncle at Thanksgiving and going, Uncle uh, uh, Uncle, Uncle Thomas, I know you went to uh, those Trump rallies last week and you're and you're still wearing the MAGA hat, even though we've requested you not to wear it. But can we talk about that? <laughs> that may be your like first level, because that's the level that people don't want to. Ha- that's the level people avoid the most frequently is the relative at Thanksgiving. But that's not the end of the work saying I had a conversation with my racist uncle. Often people think that's the end of the work. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more on anti-racism with W. Kamau Bell and Kate Schatz. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. So before the break, Kamau acknowledged that those intimate conversations with our family and close friends, they can be incredibly challenging, even as they're the basic building blocks of the work. But Kamau and Kate pointed out that this work takes on a lot of different forms. So, like, yes, doing anti-racist work can be going to a rally on a march. It can be doing stuff that's really visible. But I also think that some of the most powerful powerful work is not necessarily invisible. Um, in the same way that kind of domestic labor um, and a lot of parenting labor is not, you know, like very visible and not honored in this culture, I think some of the most powerful anti-racist work is just what you're doing in your home, the conversations that you're having with your kids, the books you're choosing to read, the movies you're watching, um, the questions you're answering, what you're talking to your neighbors about, you know, and, it, and it's, yes, sometimes it is the conversation with the overtly racist Trumper in your family, but sometimes it's just the conversations with your friends who also think that they're not racist, but don't do anything about it or um, calling out the small little things that happen all the time. I think the way that we frame activism is we, we have this vision of it as like you're marching in the streets with your protest signs and that's what it is. But we really try to show in this book that there's like actually a huge range of things that you can do to be impactful. And the most important work is really, really local in your home, in your community and in yourself. I really appreciated how you encouraged white people to talk with other white people about racism. And like one thing that scares me about that, I will just say, is like getting it wrong. I'm afraid to get it wrong. And you really address in your book the idea of repair. You acknowledge the fact that we are going to get it wrong. And then you walk us through what happens next. And I wonder if you might spend a little bit of time with our listeners talking about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that's one thing that especially when you're engaged in this anti-racism work, especially in the way that me and I would say, well, I'll own myself, but I think Kate, too, is that we're not actually the leading activists of anti-racism that sometimes people may give us credit for. Like, we believe the work is important. We want to connect people to the sources for the work. But that means that there are times where both of us have, have gotten over our skis, as I heard Barack Obama say one time, and I'd never heard that expression before, so I want to use it now, uh, that like... That the idea that there's sometimes where I have like, oops, I thought I was doing the right thing or saying the right thing or promoting the right link or or highlighting the right thing. And I was not doing the right version of it. Or I thought I was doing enough. And somebody's like, hey, why didn't you do this over here? You should have done this. I think you have to be prepared to go, oops, I'm sorry. What can I do now? And I think, you know, I always quote, we, we should have quoted it in the book as much as I've quoted it. The prophet of PBS, Daniel Tiger, who has the great song saying, I'm sorry, is the first step. Then how can I help? We quote that in our house like it's our Bible. But the idea being that like the how can I help is essential to the to the oops, to the I made a mistake, to the apology. And I think we see so many examples of bad apologies that no they're not only are they bad because there's the if you are offended or if someone was offended, the if gets in there, but they also don't say, here's what I'm gonna do to fix it. And I think we're trying to say it's really key to say, here's what I'm gonna do to fix it, or else the apology doesn't make any sense. The Academy Award folks, uh, I guess they're just called the Academy, 
apologized to um, the the Native American activist who, when Marlon Brando won an Academy Award, she did not accept it, but she gave up to give a speech about how the Motion Picture Academy was not inclusive enough of Native American activists. And a lot of Native people on Twitter would be like, thanks for the apology, but what happens now? <laughs> like That was 50 years ago. They're going to honor her, apparently. But literally, what we need to make up for more than 50 years of not doing right. And so what are the big actions you're going to do? And I think it's really easy in the current era to get social media credit for making the apology or for doing things that look like or something, but not actually do something that is meaningful. Go ahead, Kate. I think about this a lot. And we keep referencing, we're both parents. We both have young kids. And my wife and I have two nine-year-old boys and they're constantly getting mad at each other or other kids. And the immediate reaction from them, if they've hurt someone else is, it wasn't my fault. I didn't mean to do it. You know, and I'm constantly trying to reframe that for them, which is that it doesn't matter. It's the impact, not the intent, right? You stepped on his foot, he's crying. So your first thing you should do is say, are you okay? How can I help you, right? And so we're all so worried about getting blamed and getting in trouble that we completely lose focus on how we help and make someone feel better. So that's, it applies to nine-year-olds, but it applies for adults too. You will get it wrong. You will say the wrong thing. And if you do, what, what are you going to do? You can learn what you did and you can figure out how to do it better next time. And I want to do this in real time. As I was saying that, I was like, I don't know her name. The woman I'm talking about is, so I just looked it up. It's Sachin Littlefeather. So even even in real time as we're here, I was giving this example of a thing, realizing it's not effective enough if I don't know her name. Sachin Littlefeather. So that's the kind of thing that I do all the time. I'm big on like, hold on, let me Google that. Hold on, let me check that in real time. So, yeah. Well, you know, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I also live by the creed of Daniel Tiger, who is just so good. And lately in our house, he has been saying something very related because we just keep playing the episode, which is not sinking in with our three-year-old. It's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to hurt someone. Mm, Daniel Tiger. So listen, there's another thing that I'd love to just like building off that, talk to you guys about this righteousness thing that sometimes gets in the way of really healthy conversation. And I feel like repair is a part of how we address it. And here I'm thinking about an example of it. Um, And this was not in your book. I heard you guys talking about another podcast that you were doing an event at Powell Books in Portland, Oregon. How cool. I love Powell Books. And that somebody tweeted, well, you know, why are you doing Powell Books instead of this Black-owned bookstore? And that, to me, feels like this one-upmanship of righteousness to some degree, or at least it could be read as that. Like, okay, well, your work is here, but you know what? Like, I know a thing that brings my work to this next level that you should rise to. And I see that happening all the time on social media in particular. And you had a beautiful and elegant way to bring everybody back into conversation. What did you do when that happened? I saw that that post and, you know, and I, I want to be clear that it did trigger that sense of panic in me. Like, I, I am not immune to that, like, anxiety about getting things wrong or being defensive. So I felt that in me being like, oh, no, ah, we fucked up. Ah, we didn't do that. You know, da, 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 people are mad at us. And then I, you know, calmed myself down. I replied to the person that posted it. And I messaged them and said, hey, thank you so much. I had no idea about this bookstore. I've never heard of it. I don't live in Portland. I'm super happy to know about it. I'll reach out to the owners and maybe we can go by and sign some books while we're in town. And that person who posted the thing wrote back and said, cool, thanks. That's great. They're a really great bookstore. And then I wrote to the bookstore um, and we didn't end up going by there because our flight was late and we didn't have time, but we've been in communication with them and we're going to sign some book plates and send them to them for their books. And it was fine. But again, it, 
that post had that kind of tone, um, which is okay. It's fine. People can do that. But I think often when we see that, it makes us freak out. We think it's going to be a huge thing. And then just, you know, refine directly and be like, oh, thanks. Cool. I learned a new thing. I didn't know about that bookstore. I brought it up because it is a beautiful example of what the work actually is. Often the the work in its most effective form is it at least appears small, but it, it is those small movements that bring us back into common conversation and allow us to, to move together. And that one in particular, that yeah. like the way that people use social media to be right, I feel like can be very damaging to this work. I think it's a part of the idea that if you're going to be involved in any work that is this thick or this thorny, or there's this many feelings involved in, or there's, and it has been, not done well and and people are really working hard to try to figure out how do we dismantle America's racism and white supremacy. Some people are going to have feelings about things you do that they think aren't the way to do it. And you have to sort of understand that's a part of the work too. That didn't happen to me all the time. Like I think I was defensive about the thing in Portland, I have to admit, but I didn't respond. And if you are feeling defensive, then don't respond. And that's the thing I think I've learned is like, if I'm really in my feelings about it, That's not the time to respond because then I'm going to try to one-up their one-upsmanship and that's not going to get us to the place where the place in Portland gets their signed books. So, you know, how did you choose? Again, this is a question I began with, but it's a question I also want to end with. Your book is, um, it is meaty. How did you choose what went in and what didn't make it in? I'd say most of what didn't make it in are things we couldn't figure out. I mean, the book, I think, was supposed to be 150 pages. It's 176. So that tells you right there that we pushed the limits of what could be in there. At one point, like, I want to do the Mad Magazine page fold in where it looks like one thing and then you fold it in and it's something else. And I just couldn't figure it out. I didn't have enough time to try to figure that out. And and Kate had one. Was it, was it the Rebus? Oh, yeah. I had this whole vision. We worked with an amazing art director named Diane Holton. She designed the book and she commissioned all the artists um, who did the illustration for the book, um, all of whom are artists and illustrators of color. And, you know, so a lot of our process was we'd have all these ideas and then we'd bring them to Diane. And, you know, I, I wanted to do a, a rebus or like a pictogram that tells a story where every other word is like a little image or illustration instead of the word. And I wanted to do one that was about the construction of race and whiteness in colonial America. <laughs> it was like super historical, geeky stuff. And this, they just couldn't figure out how to make it happen. So, you know, we let that one go. We wanted to do a scratch and sniff page, but that was too expensive. <laughs> uh-huh. And we didn't know what smells we would have. It, just, it smells like racism. You know, we, we played around a lot. We had a really big sandbox of ideas that we just played in and, and just got in as much as we could. And I think also maybe how we ended up narrowing it down is that we just really wanted every page to count. We really understand people's short attention spans especially in this day and age. Like we'd love it if you start on page one and read all the way through and complete every single activity. But we also wanted people to be able to pick it up and open to any page and have it be something you could instantly drop into and um, understand what's going on and be engaged and be curious. So that, that was also kind of our criteria was really making every single thing in there just like really pop. I love that. You should know that this book is now going to the front seat of our car. It's going to be a car trip book for our family. Um, oh, I love that. Right? That's great. We've heard people have so many, you know, people talked about putting it in the break room at work or in the staff bathroom. <laughs> on their boss's desk. Just like dropping it, like, it on their boss's desk. All cash like. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Well. Don't let your boss see it. Just sort of just, they just go in there and go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I think this book is a great service to our listeners and I hope they check it out and I wish you all the luck with it. 
And I look forward to having you on the show for your next book, which I am already positive we need. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That was W. Kamau Bell and Kate Schatz. You can find Do the Work, an anti-racist workbook, wherever books are sold. So this week on Office Hours, we're going to talk about humor. Do you ever use it to diffuse a difficult conversation? I know I do. So when does it work for you, and when is it really a bad idea? I bet the answers here are going to surprise us. So let's discuss it at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday afternoon. You can find us, as always, on the LinkedIn news page or drop us an email to hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send you the link. We love listening to and hearing from you, the listeners. So even if you don't want to come to office hours, drop us a note and let us know what you think of this episode and others. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor keep us accountable to our community. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. Daniel Tiger. So we're gonna look back one day. Daniel Tiger. I mean, let's just do a whole podcast about Daniel Tiger. I, mean, I think we so should. Brilliant.